Well, good morning again. Uh, for those of you, there are a few new faces here. I'm really glad you're here. Hope that you're uh, blessed by your time visiting uh, with us today. Uh, my name is Philip Patterson. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we're we're going to move now into a time of Bible study. It's my privilege to be able to just walk us through now into uh, the Gospel of John. We're going to continue our series, and we're back in, uh, we're in, we're in chapter 12 today. Um, I'm a little under the weather at the moment, so if you guys could bear with me. I'm, I'm kind of drugged up, and so if we go off on all kinds of tangents, just be just snap, you know, bring me back, and we'll, we'll come back to it. Um, no, but uh, I'm going to be hacking a little bit, and I apologize for that. Um, so, John chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, and if you don't, you can either raise your hand, and one of our FIT team members will get one uh, to you, or you can follow along on the screen here. But today we're looking at a really neat passage of Scripture. I'm, I've been really enjoying uh, the study uh, this last week on these the first eight verses in John 12. Um, and this is going to be a little bit of a departure from uh, the norm for us. If you've been with us for much of our, our study in John, um, you'll, you'll know that John's book um, is very, very specific in its intent. What, we keep coming back to the same verse right at the end of John in chapter 20, verse 31, where John tells us the reason why uh, he, he wrote the book. We've said it almost every week here, just constantly reminding ourselves, what, what's this book all about? John says that he wrote the, his gospel, that his, his, his story about Jesus, that the readers might understand that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. That's the reason why he put this gospel together. And so... With that in mind, we can see why he included the teachings that he did and the parables that he did and the, you know, the, the Jesus' claims that he did and even the miracles that he did. Because when you actually, when you look through John, you'll see that oftentimes Jesus' sayings and his teachings will coincide with the miracles. You know, it, it, you know John's, uh, the, the, the miracles that Jesus chooses to include in his gospel, he calls them signs. As Pastor Joe mentioned last week, they're signs because they're pointing us to something. The, the miracles, the, the great supernatural works that Jesus does don't terminate on themselves. They're pointing us to something greater. Namely, they're authenticating Jesus' claims. Okay, so for example, Jesus uh, says, I'm the bread of life, right? He says, it's through me that you'll be filled up. It's through me that you will be sustained. I am what you need. I am the food that you should feed on, okay? And, and then, you know, everybody thinks he's crazy, right? That's a crazy metaphor. And so he goes and then he feeds 5,000 people. Okay? And, and then, you know, he says, I am the light of the world. And people want to kill him for, for that statement. They, they think he's crazy. They, they want to stone him. That's a blasphemous statement. He says, I am the light of the world. It's through me that you will see God, through me that you will see eternal life. They don't believe him. They want to kill him. So he immediately goes out, finds a man that was born blind, and heals him, gives him sight. He says, you don't believe me? Watch this. Okay? Last week we looked in John 11. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. Anyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Um, again, they think he's crazy. He goes and he raises a man from the dead, right? A man who'd been in the tomb for several days already. He raises him from the dead, okay? So, so what we've been looking at each week, basically, throughout our, the, the last several months that we've been going through John, is we've been either looking at these amazing claims that Jesus makes, or we're looking at the signs that authenticate those claims. Um, today, we're going to kind of depart from that uh, uh, yeah, depart from that strategy, that structure. What we're going to do instead is we're going to look at the proper response to Jesus' claims. Okay, so we're not going to be necessarily talking about what Jesus claimed or what he did. We're going to be talking about what is our response. What's our, our reasonable response? In, in Romans chapter 12, Paul, this great passage, a lot of you will be familiar with it. In Romans chapter 12, Paul, Paul says, therefore, actually, in the first one through, you know, chapters 1 through 11, uh, uh, Paul 
lays out the gospel. He lays out the truth about who God is and who we are, you know, the, and, and, and God's plan, God's narrative, God's, God's creative work. He said he, God has created you. He has created you to know him and to enjoy him, uh, but, he, but we have all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul says in Romans, right? We've all sinned, and we've all been separated from that sin, but God loves us too much to let us, you know, uh, live, live on into eternity, perishing, dying, being remaining, separated from him. And so God does something incredible, and he sends his own son to live the life that we should have lived, that perfect life, and to die the death that we should have died as punishment for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God. He lays out this, this, the gospel in this amazing, comprehensive way in chapters 1 through 11. And then in chapter 12, Paul says, Therefore, in light of all that truth, in light of chapters 1 through 11, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, he says, in light of what God has done and what, what he has gifted us with, what he offers us with, in, in view of God's mercy. You remember what it says? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy means set apart. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Some translators translate that. This is your reasonable act of worship. Okay? In light of who God is and what he has done, the only reasonable response, the only rational response, the only logical response is to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. He who has given you everything, the only, the only reasonable response to that, we offer him our everything. Amen? Okay? And so what we, what we, that we're going to be talking about our response to who Jesus is and what he's done and the way he's proved that. What is our reasonable response to Jesus? Um, and in these first eight verses of, chapter, of John chapter 12, we get a glimpse of what that looks like, uh, what it means to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. In these short eight verses, we get a glimpse of what it looks like when the worth of Jesus and the love and worship of his followers match, okay? We get a glimpse of when, at, at the, that the weight of his glory and when the intensity of our devotion correspond with one another. And my hope is that each one of us regardless of where we are in our spiritual journey, would, would take one more step towards that kind of response to Jesus. So let's read John chapter 12, 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Specifically, we thank you for the Gospel of John. And we thank you, God, that for the last, I don't know, six months or so, we've been able to um, just get a clear picture of, of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. We've been able to see his identity and his mission. And I pray, Father, that um, as for many of us who have been here the last six months, as that stuff is fresh in our mind, God, I pray that you'd help us today to understand how we should respond. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be devoted to you, that you would help us to place our faith and our affections in you and you alone. 
Father, I pray for every person here. I don't believe it's a uh, coincidence that um, we're here in this room. I don't, I don't think it's just by chance. I believe, God, that you have orchestrated each one of us to be here today to, uh, to be with one another and to be able to study this passage of Scripture and to sing these songs together. I believe that you're moving today. And so, God, I pray that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would, would soften our hearts, open our hearts to, to hear you and to receive you today. I pray, Father, that each one of us would take another step in our spiritual journey towards you. Thank you, Father, for what you've done uh, in Christ and what you're doing today through the Holy Spirit. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so three things. I just want to point out three things in these eight verses. Um, as I said, the response of a Christian, it's devotion. I could have used all kinds of, whoa, excuse me. Did I break another one? I think it's the same one. Bob, can I steal yours? Thanks. So, um, yeah, the, the, uh, the response of a Christian, right? I use the word devotion. Uh, First, the devotion of a Christian is uh, personal, the devotion of a Christian is public, and the devotion of a Christian is costly. We're going to look at those three things. The, the devotion of a Christian is personal, it's public, and it's costly. So first, the devotion of a Christian is personal. It's individual, okay? It's, it's unique. And to see this, we're going to have to step back for a second, and let's remember our context of John 12. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Pastor Joe, masterfully, I might add, uh, uh, walked us through chapter 11, Okay, he walked us through chapter 11 where Lazarus, one of Jesus' close buddies, uh, got really sick and was on his deathbed. And Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, sent for Jesus, who was off doing ministry, said, come quickly, you know, Lazarus is on his deathbed, Uh, come heal him before it's too late. Jesus uh, decides he's going to wait. He's going to wait it out. He's going to give it several days, and so... um, uh, Lazarus ends up dying and is in the tomb for several days before Jesus strolls into town. Okay, and as you can imagine, Mary and Martha are, are upset, they're confused, they are frustrated that Jesus chose to wait because Lazarus has now died and is in the tomb. And Jesus basically tells him, he says, trust me, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Okay, trust me, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus was going to use this opportunity to show Mary, Martha, Lazarus, the village of Bethany that he was not just some two-bit miracle worker, two-bit faith healer, but he is in fact the son of God that holds the keys to to life and death. Okay, and so uh, Jesus comes into town, he heads to the tomb, and Joe laid it out really well for us last week that, you know, in in this really stunning Picture, just before Jesus acts, he knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But just before he goes and he acts, he looks around at what's happening outside of the tomb. He looks around at the impact of death. He looks at the weeping and the sorrow and the mourning um, over this man, Lazarus. And in this really stunning scene, one of the most moving scenes, I think, in all of the Bible, you see Jesus, before he acts, he just comes alongside the mourners and he starts crying with them. And he starts weeping alongside each of them. His heart has just broken over suffering. That's one of the most beautiful pictures to me because it reminds me that, that we are not alone in our suffering. You know, even though God has a plan and he, he's going to make all things work together for the good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose, even while we're in the midst of our suffering, we are not alone. God has a heart of compassion. He walks alongside us. He weeps with us in our suffering. But what John tells us then is after he weeps with the mourners is that he is so deeply moved that he, you know, just this, this fire in his eyes and this rage in his voice, he comes towards the tomb. The word that, that's used in the Greek there, Joe mentioned this last week, is, is 
that he comes, he approaches the tomb like that of a roaring lion. That's the picture we have of Jesus coming against death, marching against death. He comes to the tomb and he says, remove the stone. And the stone is removed and he calls Lazarus out. And Lazarus, who's been dead in the tomb for four days, comes out alive and well. Okay, so that was where we left off last week. Now today, the very next scene that we get is Lazarus and Mary and Martha's response to what Jesus did. Okay? And here, here's their response. They, they think, we've got to celebrate Jesus. We've got to honor him publicly. And so John says, they gave a dinner for him. All right? And it wasn't just like, oh, well, Jesus, hey, thanks for that. That was great. Why don't you pop by our house and we'll feed you? Right? We'll, we'll, we'll give you dinner if you come by. No, they gave a dinner for him. The Greek means it's, it's a banquet. It's a big public banquet. They're celebrating Jesus publicly. Uh, this is our context. So here's where we get to our first point. I told you the devotion of a Christian is personal. Okay, it's unique. Look at Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and look at what each of them are doing in their efforts to honor Jesus. Verse 2 again. So they gave a dinner for him there. Here we go. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with them at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Okay, so what was Martha doing? Serving. Martha was serving. And by the way, if you know anything about Martha, this is pretty typical of her, right? Okay? She, she, she's, she likes, she's a doer. Okay? She likes to be busy. She, I can imagine she likes to be behind the scenes. She's got her checklist. She likes to be busy. When I was talking to my wife about this passage this week, she said, you know, out of all three, I think you're probably most like Martha. I probably relate with Martha. I like having a checklist. I like to be busy. I like to be doing stuff. Okay? We have a lot of Marthas in our, in our church, by the way. Okay? Uh, what about Lazarus? What is Lazarus doing? He's sitting and he's eating, right? Yes, we've got a lot of, we've got a lot of Lazaruses in our churches too. Um, okay, but Lazarus isn't just being lazy and gluttonous, is he? Okay, remember here. Remember, this is not just a, a, a private affair, right? It's not just like, you know, these three and Jesus. This is a public banquet. So, I bet this place would have been packed with lots in attendance, even more people looking in through the open window. Oftentimes when a rabbi would come into a home and there'd be some kind of celebration or he'd be teaching, you know, the village would come in and they would listen. It'd be kind of a public affair. Um, so there's a lot of people in there watching and they planned this banquet for the purpose of honoring Jesus. What better way to honor Jesus than by putting Lazarus, the raised man, right next to Jesus as a witness to what Jesus has done? Lazarus is uniquely positioned to be the best living testimony to the power and the greatness of Jesus Christ. I don't think Lazarus was just being lazy or a glutton, okay? I think he's being a witness. You got Martha, who works. You got Lazarus, who is a witness. And when, what about Mary? Mary worships. Mary gets all the credit, basically, in the story, Right? Even in Matthew and Mark, when it's recorded there, I think you know, Jesus is quoted as saying, everywhere the gospel is preached, this story will be told about what she's done. Right? Mar- Mar- Mary gets all, all the credit in this story. And it's great. She, she worships. Um, but I think it's, it's important to at least point out, something I never caught before this week, but something it's important to point out, that each of the family members had distinct roles, important roles to play. For if Lazarus, instead of sitting next to Jesus, being kind of almost like a trophy, saying, look what Jesus has done, look at him. Right? People can say, well, look, there's Jesus. He's that great rabbi who healed a man. Look, there's Lazarus right next to him. That's the man that was raised from the dead. Right? We see him with our own eyes, kind of like a trophy. 
If Lazarus instead was doing what Martha was doing, you know, if he was off in the kitchen and he was, you know, cooking up food and he was doing the dishes, how many people would not have been able to see the evidence of the power of Christ? Everybody has their distinct, important roles to play. We have to be really careful, by the way. Um, uh, we, we, we can see this right in our, our, our very own church. We have to be very careful not to compare ourselves one to another in the kingdom of God. Um, you know, we, we, give, we give Mary a whole lot of credit, um, you know, because she, she does this great, elaborate, extravagant, you know, worship. And, and, and you know, even, even Lazarus, he's a guy that's raised from the dead. But think about it. Again, if Lazarus was, was you know, needed to go do what Mary was doing, many people would have, have missed out on seeing, you know, the evidence of the power of Christ. Martha, because she was willing to serve, allowed Lazarus to be where he was. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. We get that, right? Well, I think we do, but sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Just because you set up chairs instead of leading worship with a team does not make you any less important, right? Because you're, you're back doing the sound does not make you any less important than the person who's teaching or leading a Sunday school, okay? Um, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. We all have distinct, important roles to play. Paul says this very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, for just as the body, the human body, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ, Christ's body, the church. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, well, that would not make it any less a part of the body, because if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Hey, each one of us have been wired and gifted and positioned to function in unique and important roles within the kingdom of God. Amen? What about you? How has God uniquely wired and gifted and and positioned you to honor him? Um, what resources has he blessed you with? What, what passions, what, what gifts, what abilities has he given you? Think about your personality. Again, I think, this, I think this is Martha's personality. I think this is what she did. This is, every time we see Martha, this is where she's at. She's serving. Consider your personalities. Consider your relationships. Consider your job. Consider your education. Consider your experiences. These things, these gifts, were never meant to terminate on you. You know that, right? These things were never meant to terminate on ourselves. These are tools given to us that we might honor God with them. How has God uniquely wired and positioned you to bring honor to him? Okay, so first, the devotion of a Christian is personal. It's unique. It's individual. But secondly, the devotion of a Christian is public. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And then listen, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I love that. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Friends, our worship and our devotion to Jesus Christ has the the potential to affect others around us, right? So here's the question we should ask. Are your spouse and your kids and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers, are they enjoying the fragrance, or as Paul called it, the aroma, the aroma uh, that comes from worshiping Christ, from living for Christ? How are you smelling these days? How's your house smelling these days? 
Is your house filled with, with the fragrance of their perfume, or with the, filled with the aroma of what, of, of what comes when you, when you live for Christ? How is your cubicle at work smelling these days, or do you just smell like everybody else? Let me illustrate what I think this can look like. One of my favorite books, a book called The Great Divorce um, uh, by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis um, wrote this story about, about a young man who uh, travels to the, kind of the outskirts of heaven. And he's got this guide with him, and he's, he's seeing what's there, and he's listening to these conversations, and his guide is helping to explain to him all of these things that are happening. And as, as, as this, this young man and his guide are there, um, there's this enormous parade that comes their way. Right, this, this parade, and there's these boys and these girls and, and men and women dancing all around this one central, like, glorious figure that com- comes towards them, right? And, and uh, this figure was, was so beautiful and so full of light, the young man couldn't even look at it. It was so bright, so brilliant, he couldn't even look at this figure. This is what Lewis writes. The young man's whispering to his guide. He says, is it, is it, and he's asking if it's, if it's Jesus. And, and the guide says, no, 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 not at all. It is someone that you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. Well, she seems to be, well, a, a person of particular importance, asked the young man. I said the guide. She is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. Well, who are all these young men and women on each side, asked the man. Oh, they are her sons and daughters, the guide replied. Wow, she must have had a very large family, sir. No, the guide replied, every young man or boy that met her, listen, every young man or boy that met her became her son. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Well, isn't that a bit hard on her parents, the young man asked? No, the guide replied, her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their own natural parents, loving them even more. And now the abundance of life that she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. And the young man looked at his teacher in amazement. The guide said, yes, it's like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Okay, did you follow that? Who was Sarah Smith in the story? She's a nobody. Sarah Smith was a nobody. She she was from Golders Green, which is a nowhere little town, a little podunk little town. Okay, Sarah Smith never married. She never uh, made a lot of money. She probably wasn't in, in vocational ministry, okay? But, but that Sarah Smith became a woman of such enormous love and influence that she affected life after life after life after life because of the joy and the peace and the hope that she held in Christ. Every, every young, young man that she met became her son. Every young woman that she met became her daughter. Um, we have some Sarah Smiths in our church, don't we? Um, she's not here right now, and I, so I can talk about her. Katie Hazelden. When I when I when I when I came um, when I read this this passage again, I, that's that's immediately what I thought of was Katie Hazelden. H- how many daughters does Katie Hazelden have in our church? Okay, um, Joseph and Sato Giragosian was another was another example of that. How many sons and daughters does Joseph and Sato have in this church? People that they care about. People that they're poor. That, you know, I think of Katie, she, she is constantly loving and praying for and encouraging and challenging and acting as an advocate for these, you know, young, young women. I mean, you know, she, I know she's not here because she sits right there and basically there's just a whole little entourage. Katie Hazelden, our 83-year-old, you know, just matriarch basically of this church, just has a whole little entourage right here around her. She is Sarah Smith of, Golder, of Golders Green. I want that to be in my life. 
Don't you? May that be said of every single one of us, that, that our lives would be like a stone thrown into a pool and the concentric waves just continue to spread out farther and farther. Who knows where it will end? Amen? Our devotion to Christ is personal. It's also public. And finally, it's costly. Let's finish our time by, by looking closely at what, at what Mary does here. Um, Mary brings in this jar of incredibly expensive ointment, this, this perfume. Judas tells us when he's you know, uh, uh, rebuking her, he tells us that this ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii. One denarii was basically uh, one day's labor, right? One day's wage for a day laborer. And so this is basically about, about a full year's wages for a day laborer because you know, that's not counting Sabbaths and it's not counting the festivals. Okay? So this is about one year's uh, wages for a day laborer. So in our terms, if you think about you know, uh, uh, minimum wage for 10 to 12 hours, five, six days a week, you're looking at basically around twenty-five to $30,000 in our uh, equivalent. All right, so this is about a $30,000 perfume, give or take. That's pretty expensive perfume, right? About once a year, I buy cologne for 40 bucks, and I just, it kills me to do it, right? I hate it. $30,000 perfume, okay? And I just, let me, let me clarify. I don't think, regardless of the fact that they've got $30,000 ointment, I don't think Mary and Martha and Lazarus were all that wealthy. Because if they were, uh, Matthew and Mark tell us that this banquet takes place in Simon the leper's house. If they were all that well off, they probably would have had a house large enough where they could have hosted the banquet, right, to honor Jesus. But they don't. They have to go to someone else's house. They go to Simon the leper's house. Also, if they were that wealthy, they probably would have had servants that worked for them. Martha wouldn't have had to be the one to serve. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, Martha complains to Jesus that Mary's not helping her out. Martha is overwhelmed with the work. If, she, if they were wealthy enough, they could have hired some help. But Martha's the one helping. I don't think they were all that wealthy, okay? Um, so they're not rich. Therefore, this is probably, this ointment, this perfume is probably the most precious and valuable thing that they own. I would imagine that's the case. Because not many of us here have, have multiple items in our home that are worth, uh, you know, a year's wages, right? Not many of us have multiple items in our home that are $30,000 or more. I don't, I don't think that they, I think that this is probably the most precious thing they have. Most scholars suggest, in fact, that this was probably, because of what it was contained in, probably a family heirloom, something that was passed down from generation to generation. So Mary walks towards Jesus, and you can just imagine this, this hush that falls over the room as, as, she, as she walks towards him with this, you know, great treasure. And, so, and people are thinking, oh, wow, they're probably gasping, and, you know, draw, jaws are being dropped. And people are saying, wow, Mary and her family, they are taking their most precious perfume, the most precious, and they're going to give Jesus a few drops of this ointment. How fitting. What an honor for Jesus. Wow. What an honor for Jesus. Um, you know, and they probably assumed a few drops because by the, that was customary. It was customary to take a few dabs of the ointment and put it on the head of your guests. And the reason that was customary um, was because, well, because the stink was so bad, right? Um, think, I'm not trying to be gross or anything, but uh, this, is, this is the day before refrigeration, Right? These are years before refrigeration. These are the years before um, uh, running water and regular showers. All right? These are the years before deodorant and toothpaste. All right? They might have been a little more used to it than us, but still it stank. Right? And so um, 
you know, they're, they're, it's a hot climate. They're walking through the dust. They're walking through, you know, trails and streets where animals have come through and, and, and used the bathroom and all that stuff. It, it probably stank in there. So they would, it was customary on a special event like this for the, the host to take a couple dabs of ointment and put it on their guest. And what it would do is this like little protective shield. It would kind of, you know, help kind of mask some of the stank. Um, so they're thinking, wow, you know, Mary's going to give her a couple of, of ointments or a couple drops of the ointment and it's going to be great. You know, what an honor for Jesus. Nobody would have been surprised to see Mary bring out the perfume. But here's where things take a turn. According to Matthew and Mark, um, Mary walks up to Jesus, and instead of, you know, taking a couple little drops, putting it on his forehead, she breaks the container over his head, pours out the entire contents, all $30,000, $25,000 worth of the perfume over Jesus. John tells us it's about, it's about 11 ounces. And so basically think of a soda can. Think of the contents within a soda can. That's how much um, you know, she would have poured out over Jesus. And it would have come down his hair, down his beard, onto his clothes, and then onto his, fe- onto his feet. And then Mary drops to her knees at his feet and starts scrubbing. Okay? Uh, now, John mentions what, what Judas said in response to what he saw. Right? Judas is appalled at this scene. But it, Matthew and Mark actually clarify that it's not just Judas. The others in the room do the same thing. Actually, the, the term that they used is they said he, they rebuked her sharply. In the Greek, it's the very same word. Remember I told you when Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus and he's bellowing with anger, right? He's, he's coming at it like a roaring lion. It's the very same word right here. When, when everybody sees what Mary does, they are so shocked and appalled that they come at her like a roaring lion. I've never noticed this before this week, but basically everybody in the room was yelling at Mary. Like, what have you done? What are you doing? Why? Why would they do that? Three reasons, I think. For one thing, obviously, like we've already said, the perfume's expensive. And Mark tells us she breaks the container, therefore it's all gone. Okay, he just, she doesn't just give a little dab. It's, it's, it's broken. Everything's poured out, and it's incredibly, incredibly expensive. And you know that there are many in that room, including Judas, who thought, wow, this is way out of proportion. Sure, honor Jesus. That's all well and good. Honor him. But come on, that is way too much. That is, that is far too liberal, far too radical of a sacrifice, far too radical of worship. That's way over the top. Give him a few drops, but don't give him the whole thing. But Mary says, no, 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 it's just right. Just right. He doesn't deserve a few drops. He deserves everything. He doesn't deserve 10%. He deserves it all. You follow me? He deserves everything. And by the way, I mean, that, that, this is exactly what Judas is saying. He says, 300 denarii? Are you kidding me? You think Jesus is worth $30,000? In just a matter of a couple of days, Judas is going to show how, how much he values Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. That, that's his value of Jesus. Not 30,000, about 30 pieces of silver. So what, it, what, it's, what it's been doing, doing to my heart this week is thinking, how much is Jesus worth to me? That's the question we should all ask. Is he worth my job? Is he worth this habit? Is he worth, you know, my money? Is he worth 10000 to me, 20000 30000 Is he worth my reputation? What's Jesus worth? What's the value of Jesus? 30 pieces of silver or 300 denarii? Now, let me take it a step further. Would you indulge, I'm just going to openly confess here, this is speculation, all right? 
I've been thinking about this passage a lot this week. Here's some speculation. Indulge me for just a minute. If Mary and, and, and her family were not incredibly wealthy, which I, I'm almost positive they weren't, and this was a family heirloom like most scholars think, then this would have essentially been the financial security for their family. They were not rich, but they had this one valuable nest egg. Okay? Right? This, this one thing that... Uh, you know, they could fall back on. If anything happens, if there was a famine in, in, the, in the area, if there's an invasion, if something happens with the occupying, you know, Roman Empire, if, if somebody lost their job, if, if somebody died, they had something they could fall back on, okay? Now, um, follow me here. Mary and Martha, we don't think were married because if they were married, then John would have introduced them and the other gospel writers would have introduced them as Mary, the wife of so-and-so, or Martha, the wife of so-and-so, but they don't do that. It's Mary and Martha. So most people believe, don't believe that they were married. That being the case, when Lazarus got sick and was near to death, um, I, I can imagine that Mary and Martha would have been scared for, for several reasons. One, because they don't want to lose their brother whom they love. But two, because in a male-dominated society, I can almost guarantee you that Lazarus was the breadwinner. I almost guarantee you that Lazarus was the one bringing home the bacon, who was providing for their needs, caring for the, the, the sisters. So Mary and Martha call to Jesus and they say, come on, help, our, help Lazarus. Number one, because they want him to be well. But number two, they're providing for him, for them. He, he's providing for them. And so they call, for, they call for Jesus, but Jesus doesn't show up when they want him to. And Lazarus dies. They had looked to Jesus and they didn't see him coming through in the way that they thought he should. And I bet you, I bet you at some point this went through Mary's mind. Well, if Jesus doesn't come through, at least I've got the perfume. If God doesn't show up and come through like I think he should, at least I have this to fall back on. This is what I'm ultimately resting, you know, my security in. And now, after Jesus has done what he has done, Mary sees once and for all that Jesus will come through, but in his way and in his timing, and his way is always best, and so she approaches him now with this bottle at this banquet. This one thing that she, her ultimate fallback, she comes to him and this thing, with this thing that she has leaned on and trusted in for years, and what does she do? She breaks it and she dumps it out. I know this is speculation, but I think one of the things, something going on in Mary's mind is, never again will I trust in anything but you. The second thing she does that makes the, the room, you know, basically erupt and everybody uh, be so shocked as she drops to her knees and she washes his feet. Um, as a lot of you know, in that culture, this is an incredibly humbling and degrading act. So much so that not even the servants or the slaves were asked to mess with their, their, their master's feet. Okay, um, The Jewish rabbis of that day basically said, okay, there are some, some things you can ask no person to do. Everybody has certain rights. Everybody has certain dignity. You can't ask the servant to you know, untie your shoes and mess with their feet. That's too dirty. It's too demeaning. It's too degrading. Right? So consider then, with that being the case in that culture, consider then what Mary is stating in her actions. Consider what she's saying. She drops down to her knees and she starts scrubbing Jesus' feet. I think what she's basically saying is, yeah, sure, I get it. Everybody has rights. I lay down mine. I lay down my rights. Yes, there are certain things you wouldn't ask any person to do, but you know what? I lay that down. I give up complete control. You can ask me anything. You can ask me anything. I lay down control. No matter what it costs me, no matter what I'm asked to do, I'm yours. And then just to top it off, she's not using a clean, white, fluffy towel, is she? She bends down, 
She unbraids her hair, and she starts scrubbing with her hair. Why would she do that? I was, I was reading this out loud yesterday, and Israel was in the, in the living room with me, and uh, just, just kind of reading it out loud, kind of going through it, and Israel kind of like just shot me a look like, what? <laughs> with her hair? Because um, it's so, it's, what in the world is she trying to communicate? When, when she lets down her hair and starts scrubbing, scrubbing the, the, her, his feet with her hair. Well, as, again, as most of you, you probably know, you know, when a woman lets her hair down, it means basically the same thing it means in our culture, only a whole lot more. Right? When, you, when you let your hair down, this, it's a statement of you know, uh, comfort and, and intimacy and openness and familiarity and, and love. Um, it's, it was something, it was, it was actually scandalous to do that, for a woman to do that in public. Uh, it was only something to be done at home within the context of loving relationships with your husband or with your family. In fact, the rabbi said that if a woman let her hair down in front of a man that was not her husband, it was grounds for divorce. Okay? This is how scandalous of a statement this would have been to let her hair down because it's, you're, you're expressing intimacy. Here's why I think this is so neat. It's what I tried to explain to Israel yesterday. I told him, although, although it would have been a complete scandal in that culture and she's humiliating herself in front of all of her friends and in front of all of her family, she is showing Jesus not only her commitment, what she's committing, but the love that's behind the commitment. You follow me? She's not only saying, here's what I'm, here's what I'm willing to do, here's what I'm going to do, but I'm going to show you why I'm willing to do that. She's not just saying... She's not just saying, all right already, you can have the perfume, I get it. Here, you know what, take the whole thing. Fine, you know what, I'll, I'll even get down and I'll even wash your feet. This is so disgusting, I'm going to wash your feet even. Mary is showing us what it means to not only love God with our mind and with our strength, but also with our heart and our soul. You see? And friends, it's possible for us to, to say the same thing to God. To, to give in begrudgingly. Right? To say, fine, God, I, I'll give in. I get it. I owe you. You created me. I owe you. I'll submit. I'll do what you ask me to do. I'll try to listen and obey. But still hold back our emotions. Still hold back our heart. Still, still not make you know, Jesus the, the thing that we delight in and the thing that we treasure. Mary is showing us what it means to love God, not just, not just with our mind and with our strength, but also with our heart and our soul. One pastor put it like this. I like this a lot. He said, when Mary pours out the perfume, she is saying, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. But when she falls at Jesus' feet, she's saying, take my will, make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. And when she lets down her hair, she's saying, take my love. My Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Our worship and our devotion is costly. Um, now, does that mean that we're all supposed to go tomorrow and drain our savings accounts? Um, maybe. I don't know. Ask him. Um, here, here's what I know it means. Christ is calling you and I to transfer our faith and affections from the things of this world more and more each and every day uh, to the one who is worthy of that faith and affection. More and more, each and every day, Christ is calling us to transfer our faith and affections from the things of this world to the one who is worthy of that faith and affection. So I just hope all of us, I've been asking myself the same question. What step do I need to take? What, what do I need to loosen my grip on? 
Um, What about you? What's that next step for you in transferring your faith and your affections from the things of this world and transferring it to him? Maybe, Maybe for some of you here today, maybe it's the first step. Maybe you need to take a first step in in placing your faith in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, um, loving him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, If that's the case, we say this all the time here, the love of Jesus is free. Okay, The love of Jesus is free. You cannot pay for his love. It's a free gift. That's what grace means. We are saved by the grace of God, the free gift of God. You cannot pay for his love, but Jesus also did say, count the cost. He said you cannot pay for his love, but it will cost you everything. Jesus meets us right where we are, but he loves us far too much to let us stay where we are. You hear me? If you've never taken that first step in following Jesus, Jesus will meet you right where you are today. But he loves you far too much to let you stay where you are. Grace means free gift, but the grace that Jesus offers us is costly. It's costly grace. And I know that sounds like a contradiction in terms. Let me explain how Bonhoeffer put it. Uh, he said, Bonhoeffer said this, he said, Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave his nets and follow him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and yet it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and yet it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and and grace because it justifies the sinner. You cannot pay for his love, but it will cost you everything. Have you received Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? Have you given him everything? Receiving Jesus means receiving all of him. Some, Some of us have come to Jesus. Maybe this is you today. Some of us have come to Jesus and we've tried to receive him as our Savior, but we've rejected him as our Lord. And that that's like me... That's like me coming over to your house and knocking on your door and you open it and you say, hey, Philip, come on in. Patterson, you stay out. Patterson, you stay on the doorstep, but Philip, come on in. It doesn't work like that. That's two halves of the same person, right? Okay, you, I, either all of me comes into your home or none of me comes into your home. Okay? It, it's, it's the same thing with Jesus. Jesus offers us freely. He offers us the gift of his salvation and his lordship. But we either get all of him or we get none of him. That's, that's the offer that he makes to us. We receive all of him, and he receives all of us. And if that sounds unreasonable today, if, if perhaps you say, well, that, man, it's just too high of a price. I can't give him everything. What if he asks me, me to go and be a missionary? Right? What if he asks me to go off to Africa and live you know, in the jungles? And What if he asks me to go and do this? What if he asks me to give this up? What if he asks me to give that up? It's far too high of a price. Think of it like this. Imagine you're... you're you've got a disease and you're dying, okay? Imagine you're dying of a disease and you look, you're looking all over for this medicine. You just cannot find this medicine. And, uh, and, and one day, finally, your doctor calls you and he says, hey, uh, Joe, good news. Uh, we found the medicine. We got medicine. Um, and you're like, yes, fantastic, great. And, and the doctor says, but you know what, man? I'm not sure you're going to want it um, because it's incredibly, incredibly expensive. You're, you're going to have to... Every last, every last dollar in your bank account is going to have to go. Everything's going to have to get drained. Man, and you know what? Man, that's not even going to cover it. You, you're going to need to sell your house to cover the cost of this medicine. You're, you're, you're probably going to even need to sell your car, maybe even your, your big screen TV, all of these things. So I just wanted to let you know we found it, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to want it. What would you say to them? Are you, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? 
You know, yeah, that, that stuff was important to me before, but what good is any of that stuff if I'm dead? Right? What good is any of that if I'm going to die? Guys, do, do you understand? The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses. We are dying in our trespass, dying in our sin. What good is any of the stuff we have if we don't have Jesus? Jesus is that medicine. Jesus is that treasure in the field. Sell everything you have to follow him. He is the treasure. Jim Elliot, I'll just close with this quote. We're done. Jim Elliot said it so well, so succinctly. He said, He is no fool who gives up, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amen? Let's pray.